Good evening, church family. If you don't mind, open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16 this evening. As we get started, I just want to remind you we're in the middle of a sermon series. This sermon series is tagged Passing on the Faith. And we're looking at the letter of 1 Timothy. And if you've been with us, you see this letter is very practical in nature. Paul's providing his young disciple, his child in the faith, Timothy, with concrete instructions about how to do life in church. In just three chapters, he's already taught not just Timothy, but he's instructed us to resist false teachers, to pray for government officials like Biden and like President, or excuse me, President Biden or Governor Kemp. He's instructed us on how to elect officers. How to, what type of person should we nominate? Gifted or godly? And Paul tells us godly men are the ones we should vote. But at this point in the letter, Paul pauses for a little bit of a motivational break, so to speak. Paul has laid it on thick for us in these first three chapters. And the next three chapters, he's going to continue laying it on thick, telling us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. But this particular section of Scripture, Paul gives grounds for all of the reasons of why we should heed his instructions. Why should we choose to follow Paul's instructions? Do you know why we should? These three verses are going to open up our eyes to see why it is the best thing for you and the best thing for me is to heed what he is telling us to do. So let us read God's word. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Father in heaven, your word carries weight. Your word brings order out of chaos. Your word is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. By the power of your spirit, open our eyes to see and to behold wondrous things out of your law tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Read with me now 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen to the reading of God's word. Thirteen years ago, Simon Sinek walked onto a stage to deliver a TED talk titled, Start With Why? How Great Leaders Inspire Action. This YouTube video has over 10 million views. 
a broad range of people were attracted to whatever this man had to say. Businessmen, occupational therapists, law enforcement, everybody wanted to know and wanted to hear what is it that he has to say about why. In this talk, Sinek makes this point. He asks this question, what separates a company like Apple from other tech industries? What separates Martin Luther King from other civil rights activists? What is it? What is that it factor? And he would proceed and say what he has observed is something called, he has termed the golden circle. Three concentric circles. The outer concentric circle asks, what is it that you do? The middle, how do you do it? In the innermost circle, ask, why do you do it? Sinek would argue that leaders that are able to inspire action, leaders that are able to get people moving, are leaders who lead from the inside asking the question, why do we do what we do? Most of this letter, Paul has told us, leading up to these verses, Paul has told us what to do. And as we continue reading this letter, he's going to tell us more of what we should do. But right here, he pauses for a little bit of a motivational break, and he explains to us why we should do this. If you look with me at verses 14 and 15, Paul states his purpose of writing this letter pretty clearly. He says, so that we may know how we may behave, how you and I should act in the church. Again, verses 14, 15, and 16 don't necessarily address how we should act in church. They don't tell us how we should vote for our officers or who we should vote for. The rest of the letter does that. What this particular section of scripture does, it shows us why we should heed all of these instructions. It lays the groundwork, the basis for following what Paul has to say. Remember, Paul is calling all of us to live a peculiar lifestyle particularly in the context of community. Now, we live in a country that is naturally self-seeking, naturally self-preserving. We live in a world that is anti, we might say it's moving anti-family, anti-grace, anti-structure, anti-authority. We know and we see it. Yet Paul is saying within the household of God, Everything that I say, in some sense, goes contrary to that. So why, Christian, will you choose to follow what Paul has commanded in this text? Nearly, merely knowing what to do isn't enough. You need a reason why. And we don't need some homemade, humdrum, subjective why. We need a why that is rooted in Scripture and given by God. We need a why that has deep, thick roots that can withstand the, the storms of cultural ridicule or that can resist the wiles of Satan or that can push back against even that flesh that rears its ugly head in each and every one of us. That's the type of why we need. And God in his grace in these three verses 
he has provided us with a why. And not just one why, but four. But at the heart of this text, what is Paul's reason? What is Paul's why? At the heart of this text, Paul encourages us. He is motivating us and calling us to follow him because of the significance of this local church. Paul believes where you are determines how you should act. Paul believes that the significance of our local congregation is the strong why that you need to follow his instructions. We have four. Let's jump right in. The first reason Paul gives for why you should choose to follow his instructions is that your behavior, not theirs, your behavior, my behavior, in this church is an important issue, not a peripheral one. Your actions are major issues, not minor issues. As a denomination and as a local church, we have a tendency to emphasize the cognitive, the thinking over the ethical. That's just the particular bend that we have. Now don't get me wrong, theological accuracy is a must. Doctrinal fidelity is important, but so are the ethical decisions you make in this community and in this world. It is not only important that you understand that God is fully, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but you must know that you are called to live a holy life. You must not only know that God is sovereign, but you must choose to forgive your spouse when she's hurt you, your friend when he has hurt you, not only is it helpful to know the order of salvation in here, but you must be ready to welcome those who think differently than you about race, politics, cultural engagement. Paul says these things. Paul doesn't lower the bar on doctrinal fidelity. He just raises the bar on the decisions you make. Look what Paul does. He shows the importance of this, not in what he writes, but in what he does. Verse 14 and 15, Paul says this. Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if, if, by some off chance, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. At the very beginning of this letter, we see Paul adores Timothy. Paul understands the situation that's going on in Ephesus. And Paul wants to get there, and Paul's planning to get there. But there is this off chance he may be delayed. And he said, the actions of this congregation in this church, it is so important. I can't wait till I see Timothy face to face. I need to send a letter ahead of me, just in case. They need to know how to act. Not tomorrow, they need to know how to act right now. So what does Paul do? Paul sends the letter. Paul sends it and says, I'm sending this so that just in case, if I delay, you'll know how to act in the household of God. 
If any of you know me, you know I have a serious peanut allergy. Very bad, very bad. This uh, allergic reaction, this allergy has landed me in the hospital quite a few times, four to be exact. Interestingly enough, in, you know, small talk when I'm talking to anyone and I mention that I have an allergic reaction, the universal question that is always asked to me is, do you have EpiPen? And to that universal question, I give this universal response, no, but my wife does. And everybody's like, how is that going to help you? Let me give you this situation where I got myself in trouble. Back in my heyday in college, I thought I could uh, manage without an EpiPen. And it so happened that I went to the, the dining hall I got a chocolate chip cookie, or what I thought was a chocolate chip cookie. And it happened to be a chocolate chip cookie that was mixed with peanut butter. Well, the moment I bit into this, it felt like a blowtorch was put on my lips. I immediately knew what was happening, didn't have an EpiPen. And what my roommate did in a panic was he threw me into his car and drove me to the hospital. When we get to the hospital, when I come to my senses after I've been pumped full of epinephrine, the doctor, who actually was an elder at our church, who actually was in this room during my ordination, reprimanded me for two reasons. He said, one, why do you not have an EpiPen? And two, why didn't you call 911? And the reason was, he says, your allergy is so severe, you cannot wait to get that epinephrine. The EpiPen will get it to you immediately. And if you don't have that, the ambulance will get it to you immediately. In the same way, when Paul sends this letter immediately, he sends it because the situation is so dire. The actions of the people in Ephesus, the actions of us, so important that he sends this letter. So your behavior in this local congregation is not a secondary issue. Your issue is a, your actions are a primary issue. How you feel about sister so-and-so isn't just something that can be brushed under the rug. It is something that needs to be addressed because we are a body. And what that means is what hurts one person hurts us all. Sin that hurts one, sin hurts all because we are a body. Have you ever stubbed your toe? <laughs> that little pinky toe gets stubbed and you feel it from toe to the top of your head. In the same way, gossip, slander, sexual sin, pride, selfishness, all of these things affect everyone in this room. Paul understood it, and Paul's like, I got to send a letter that tells Timothy, that tells this church in 2023 how to act, because how you act is very important. The second reason to choose to follow Paul's instructions is because of how God identifies this community, this local church here in Augusta. I'm going to ask you a few diagnostic questions. How do you see this local congregation? 
do you identify the people that make up this community? Look around. When you see people, what, it, what is it that identifies them? Is it how they dress? Is it what they drive? Is it their political affiliation? What is it? How do you see people and identify those in this local body? A few more diagnostic questions. Who do you believe runs this church? Who do you believe owns this church? In Paul's mind, how you answer these questions will shape how you behave because where you are determines how you act. So Paul wants to acknowledge the true identity of the church. Look with me at verse 15. Paul says this, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. First he says the church is the household of God, and then he says it's the church of the living God. In describing the church as the household of God, he recognizes that the people who are coming together in this house church in Ephesus, they're no mere random people who lack commonality. This language of household identifies the church as family, with God as their father. With God as their father, everyone that was in that congregation was now a spiritual sibling. Everyone were now brothers and sisters in the Lord. Not only does Paul suggest this by saying this, Jesus himself does, says this in Matthew 12. When asked about his mother and his brother, this is how he responds. Here are my mother and my brothers, those who do the will of the Father. Family talk. But not only is the the church described a household of God, it is also described as the church of the living God. Paul describes the church as a group of people who have been redeemed and called out by the living God. They have been not only redeemed, but they have been called together by the living God. Two things I want you to note. One, Acts 20, Paul makes this clear. God has purchased the church with his own blood. God himself has purchased this church with his own blood. And two, this church is where God, the living God, under the new covenant has picked and determined to dwell here. This is jaw-dropping. I'm studying this text and I'm floored that the God who made the world, the God who sent his son, the God who stopped storm, the God we pray to has on his own accord determined that this is where he would dwell with his people. For this reason, Paul says, behave as I instructed. You are a part of God's family and you are in the midst of not a God who is dead. You are in the midst of the living God. The more you are aware of where you are, the more you're able to assess appropriate conduct in that space. So take for instance, it would seem inappropriate for someone to behave 
at a ball game the same way that they would behave in the library. It would seem a little inconsistent if one chose to dress up for a wedding in the same way that they would dress when they're lounging around on Christmas Eve, right? Last week, I saw an article titled, A Family Goes Viral for Wearing Their Wedding Dresses Out to Dinner. In this article, it is reported that a mom and her, I think she had uh, four daughters and two daughter-in-laws. And one night, they decided to wear their wedding gown out to dinner. Imagine somebody sitting in a farmhouse and six ladies in their wedding dresses on. Would that be eye-popping to you? It was to 4.7 million other people. One of the daughters was on uh, TikTok or Instagram, one of these social medias, and she was videotaping their dinner. 4.7 million views. Now, one person can say, that just shows how trivial America is, 4.7 people just watching somebody eat in a wedding dress. Or, or it could be that they defied the principle of how you act being determined by where you are. You wear a wedding dress in one spot at a wedding. Outside of that, it is just strange. Again, brothers and sisters in Christ, how we act in this place and in this community is determined not by what we think of other people, but by how God sees each other, sees you. You are not amongst just any old body. You are amongst those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and who call God Father. We are with people who are dearly loved by God. The people who get under your skin, those who are most annoying to you, are most treasured by Christ. And for that reason, how you talk about someone, how you speak about someone, even how you feel about someone, must be determined in light of that truth. As I said this earlier, we live in a generation that is becoming anti-structure. And this is even bleeding over into the church. What I mean by this is uh, you feel this overwhelming frustration and impatience with the structure and the institution of the church because of its failures, because of its failures to speak in on cultural issues, its failure to meet needs, and the church must acknowledge its shortcomings. The church must acknowledge that it has not handled every issue perfectly. We must acknowledge where we have failed to protect the vulnerable. We got to acknowledge where we didn't stand up for the marginalized. We got to, to, to acknowledge where we have drugged our feet when we should have spoken up. The church has its failures. But, but, for some odd reason, one that I just can't wrap my head around, God has decided that this is the place that he will dwell. Because of the finished work of Jesus, God says, this is where I will be. So for anyone that you know, for anyone in this room, 
that is frustrated, my encouragement is this. If you want to find God, never, ever, and as somebody might say, ever, 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 leave the church. Because this is where God has promised and revealed in his scriptures where he will be. The living God dwells here. The third reason we choose to follow Paul's instruction is because of the mission that God has tasked our church. What is this mission? Again, how you answer this question will shape how you behave in this local community of faith. Look again at verse 15. Paul states the mission of the church. After identifying the church as the household of God and the church of the living God, he says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul identifies the church's mission by saying this. So these are both structural terms. So for you architects or uh, whoever builds houses, whatever your name is, whatever your title, you know better than I do. But a pillar, a pillar is an upright object that is used to lift or to support. Imagine some type of vertical column that holds a roof in place. Paul is saying that the church as a pillar is to uphold truth, is to lift it up high. A buttress is an object that is a source of support and defense for a building or for a wall. And as such, the church is to defend and support the truth against heresy, against error, against deviations. The church, in doing this, lives out and makes tangible the truth that is, it confesses. The church, by holding, upholding and defending the truth, displays and embodies the truth that it preaches. The truth of the gospel is seen when churches submit to how Paul has encouraged us to act. This is not a rare Paul sees that as people, we can't embody the truth that we proclaim. Take, for instance, the, 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 the gift of marriage. In Ephesians 5, a text that is read a lot in uh, at marriages, in Bible studies on marriage, it talks about this. Husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. In Paul saying this, he's saying, Husbands have a unique opportunity to embody the truth that we proclaim. When a husband joyfully sacrifices for his wife, when a husband joyfully lays his life down for his wife, what one is able to see is what God does for, what Christ does for his people. In the same way, he says this about wives. Wives are to submit to Christ. Submit to their husbands as Christ, as the church submits to Christ. Again, this makes tangible this, the church. As the church, we submit to Christ. And when a wife does that willingly, joyfully, we're able to see this is what the church is supposed to do. This is what the church is called to do. We're able to make tangible, real time, real space, truth that seems up here. As a church, in Augusta, in 2023, we have a unique opportunity. 
Many feel that the world's moral compass is declining. The world's uh, actions are way worse now. They're going down the drain way worse now than they were 40, 50 years ago. This may be true, but this creates an opportunity to display truth to a dying world. The question is, how do we do this? Instead of being laser focused on the world we live in, we can display the truth simply by following the instructions Paul has given us in his word. Instructions about rejecting false teachers, instructions about praying for leaders, instructions about training ourselves for godliness. In doing this, we uphold, lift up high the truth. In doing this, we defend the very truth that we confess. When we embody the truth, we make tangible, we put in real time, in real space, truth for people to see and for people to witness. For this reason, Paul's saying, listen to what I have to say and do it because of the mission of the church. Paul has one last reason why we should choose to listen to his instructions. And you know what that reason is? It's because of the central confession that has been handed down to this church in 2023. We talk about passing the faith on. We talk about our church being 200 plus years old. But this confession that is passed down to us is one that has started in the first century. What truth are we called to uphold and defend? It's easy to see truth as an idea or as a statement. It's easy to put truth in this box of an idea. We believe this statement to be true. We believe that we are called to uphold and defend this set of ideas. We believe that this idea is true about men and women or that this idea is true about gender roles or that this idea is true about sexuality. All those things are well, good, and biblical. But is this the truth that Paul is talking about? For one can uphold family values, sexuality, and yet miss the truth that Paul, the central truth Paul is talking about in this text. When Paul speaks of truth, he is giving us an entirely different category than just ideas and propositions. When Paul gives us truth, he is not talking about a proposition. He is talking about a person. Look in verse 16. Look what Paul says. Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He. He then goes into a hymn of sorts, a confessional statement about the person and the work of Christ. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. When Paul speaks of the great mystery of godliness, Paul speaks of the God-man who became flesh. Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension is the central truth of all of life. That is the central truth. That is the central confessional truth that the church stands on. Jesus Christ, God-man, became flesh 
died and was raised and is now ascended in glory. In Jesus, the mystery of godliness has been revealed. The truth that man can be saved and that man can be, man can be transformed, finds its revelation and its power in the truth that God sent Jesus to save the world. The real Jesus can change you. The real Jesus can transform you. This week we were at GA and I had an amazing opportunity to sit next to Julian and the Herons and the McCurds were in front of us. I saw Ken's hands, I love it. I saw Ken's hands just waving high because we were in a worship, a two hour worship uh, gathering. And there was a song Call hast thou a hymn called Hast Thou Heard Him, Seen Him, Known Him. And I was looking at the lyrics, and I couldn't help but think of this. Tis the look of Jesus that melted Peter. Tis that fact that Stephen saw. Tis that heart that wept with Mary. Can alone from idols draw. Can alone from idols draw. The person of Jesus is the source of godliness. He is the source of saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. This central truth about the life, death, and resurrection is not just an idea. It is a power that can change you and that can change me. It can take a heart of stone and turn it to a heart of flesh. You want to enter into a relationship with God? Look to the finished work of Jesus. You want to be saved from your sins? Look to the finished work of Jesus. You want to learn about the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness? Look to the finished work of Jesus. You want to pursue godliness? Look to the finished work of Jesus. So church family, Paul has laid before us four reasons why you should heed his instructions. Brothers and sisters, what is your reason for living the peculiar life that Paul has instructed us. What will be your reason? You will need one. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your gospel. We're thankful that you have given us reasons to say yes to godliness. We say thank you, Lord, for giving us reasons to heed your instructions through Paul. Now by your spirit, will you apply this to our heart? Will you motivate us? Will we know why? So that we might do what you have called us to do. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.